If you build it, they will come. This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 35, part one, with Scott Sandland. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Welcome back, and before we even get started, I'm just going to tell you now, this is probably going to be one of those podcast sessions that you end up listening to more than once. I would even bet more than twice. There's just so much content packed into this program here today, which is, again, why we're splitting it up to be a two-part series. Now, in this part one with Scott Sandland, you're going to hear the origin story, and I love using that phrase. It sounds like it's some sort of superhero quest, Uh, but in many ways it may be. Uh, Something that started off as this little idea that then spiraled and grew and became one of the biggest online, if not the biggest, online community of hypnotists worldwide, launching into a convention as well. Now, I'm splitting this program into two parts. Part one, as you're about to listen to, is basically all about Scott's personal story, how he got into hypnosis and what his journey was in terms of building a very, very different style of business than most of us have even thought about even building. The amount of work he's done to bridge that gap between the medical professions and hypnotism is just phenomenal. So pay very special attention to the information here. And then part two, we're going to then jump into more of the how is hypnosis learned conversation. So approaches to training hypnosis that tend to, well, they tend to challenge some of the older, more accepted ways of doing things, but also at the same time, it's perhaps modeling the way that most modern education is now going. That session, part two of this is going to come to you in a couple of weeks, but let's jump in right away. This is part one with Scott Sandland. you took a slightly different path than other people did in that you began by finding a place and correct me on this by finding a place that you could be in residence as a hypnotist pretty much i mean i was doing house calls first while i was finding that you know i, I didn't have the bankroll to get an office so i was i was trying to solve for that in other ways and so i went with house calls and find a place where i could be on staff and then i went to renting space a la carte from another hypnotist. But yeah, I mean, really, the where I got my traction was uh, on staff. Yeah. And your entry point into hypnosis was one that you were a client first, right? Yeah. Car accident. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I was in a car accident where I ended up on pavement and that hurts incredibly and, and all over. And, uh, and so that's what, that's what happened to me. I was in pain everywhere and I was a college athlete in tons and tons of pain. And I'm one of those people that uh, opiates don't just they don't work on, right? You know, there's a percentage of people that the opiates, they'll make me stupid, but they won't make the pain any less at all. So they did not work. So out of complete desperation, I went and found a hypnotist. And I did not believe in hypnosis at all. Like really, I was as skeptical as any client I've ever had. Uh, but I was completely desperate. So I went and I just told the woman that. I said, I don't believe in this, but everything hurts and I will do whatever you say and give it a fair shot. And she was completely unimpressed by my criticism and my, my hesitancy. And she said, look, just do what I say. 
I did what she said. And in the first session, I had about a 30% reduction in pain, which was a huge deal for me. You know, 30% in 45 minutes was better than I'd received anywhere else. And uh, so I kept going back to see her. I was 18. You know, so I, I went and I showed my roommates and my, my buddies. We were all college athletes, so everybody I knew was in pain. So I started just kind of parroting back what she was doing to me, to my roommates and my teammates and stuff like that. And I didn't have an incredibly high success rate because I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But it was enough that I kind of I got the bug and I got hooked. And so I, I wanted to uh, up my success rate. And so I, I went and I just took classes. And then I was doing you know stage hypnosis kind of stuff in dorm rooms and uh, <laughs> performance enhancement stuff for tests and athletics. And uh, it just sort of ran away with itself that way. Yeah. Were you on a different track before that? I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's actually not that dissimilar from yours. I was a film major, actually. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to be a storyteller. And uh, I guess I guess I kind of am, you know, but oh, yeah, <laughs> you know how that is. It's that experience that from our trainings, the, the the experience of whatever our own personal life experience is prior to hypnosis, oddly enough, seems to consistently be the best possible experience we could have had going into that. I forget if I told you mine. I was the one watching a stage hypnotist, and probably like you, uh, a number of my friends were the acting majors, and the entire audience was skeptical going, yeah, but this person's an actor. They're faking. And I'm watching and going, yes, he's an actor, but he's not that good. Right, right. This is convincing. I love this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, there's a, there's a discussion on HypnoThoughts going on about that kind of thing right now on where's your background and what little pieces are you bringing to this? Uh, and Michael Elner talks about that in terms of soft skills um, quite a bit, and I think it's good. And uh, so, I mean, just looking at that thread, there are people talking about, well, the stuff I do with horses, and then I coach my kids' soccer team, and I'm learning a lot about how to help people based on just watching my kids. And you know, all these people are talking about their unique backgrounds and their unique starting points, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Let's jump around a little bit. Yeah. At which point working in hypnosis, at which point learning in hypnosis – did the idea for hypnothoughts.com first show up? So I'm, I'm a member of the IMDHA, the International Medical and Dental Hypnotherapy Association, and they had uh, Yahoo groups back then. A lot of people had Yahoo groups, Brian David Phillips, yes. there, were, there were a bunch of them. And I was a member of some of those. For me, I was going to hypnosis conferences, but it, and this sounds weird, they were, they were pretty lonely things for me because I was 18 and I, I look young still. <laughs> and so 18-year-old me looked like 12-year-old me. And so I was this, uh, very much this kid, and there wasn't anybody within 20 years of my age at these conferences. And so I would go to the classes, and like you said, uh, the, the best learning at a conference, I completely agree, happens at the bar and in the hallway and those sorts of things. And I wasn't allowed at the bar, right? So, so <laughs> I would go, it was like school for me. I would go to classes, and then I would just go back to my hotel room. And that's, it's like... Looking back on it, that's like the saddest, most pathetic thing that I would just go to these hypnosis conferences and then just go home functionally, just into this hotel room and just study what I had learned. And that's what I did. But then I learned these Yahoo groups, people didn't know how old or young I was or how old or young I looked. And they, they had to judge me by the content of my character, right? <laughs> and, so, uh, and so because of that, I got more traction. I got better feedback. I got better, uh, you know, coaching and things like that. And then there were guys like Michael Elner and and Jim Duncan and and Linda Otto and these people that uh, Marty Patton, who's uh, who was awesome, and then Paul Durbin. These people who were really uh, encouraging of what I had going on. And I'm a nerd, and so I started becoming aware of 
where the Yahoo groups just from a technological perspective was completely lacking, right? You know, there's just, it's just text and it's not even very well organized. And even today, they're still, you know, not very well executed. It's really a missed opportunity. They're kind of the same as probably they were about 10 years ago. Yeah. I have one that I first joined in 2008, and I think the Daily Digest email looks identical. Yeah. As if they just gave up on it and just said, here it is. That's really what happened. And so that was when uh, MySpace was a thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I said, what if we could get all the cool technology of MySpace into hypnosis? And I went to a couple of people who had uh, Yahoo groups, and I told them this, and they all said, no, we don't want to change anything. We don't want to do anything. This just works. And so I just made it myself. And for the first, gosh, I don't know, for the first six months, it wasn't even called HypnoThoughts. I didn't think it was going to be a thing at all. My goal for HypnoThoughts when I built it was people I knew were going to use it. And uh, it was going to be just like the other Yahoo groups, but it'd be easier to put in videos and stuff like that. And really, my goal was someday, let's get 500 people. That would be an insane <laughs> hope. Like if we got to 500, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was, I was really thinking about 160 was going to be my number. And then uh, it's one of the things that really made HypnoThoughts launch. Most people don't know this. The, one of the things that was one of the most important stepping stones in the history of hypnosis was uh, one of my mentors dying. A woman that most people don't know, but the people who knew her loved her. Her name was Janet Macy, and she had been an early mentor to me. She was just awesome, and, and she died, and I was sad. And I, people didn't have blogs. Like, I didn't have anything like that to, to kind of just vent that, right? And so just what I was thinking about, I just wrote on HypnoThoughts because that was the only place on, that I could, right? And I, and I just posted it, and I didn't do anything with it, but I, I sent a link to a couple mutual friends uh, the, you know, just who knew her professionally and, and personally like I did. It just kind of, in a very small sense, went viral in our community. And a bunch of people who knew her, you know, she was real active in, uh, in the ACHE and was, was a friend of Gil Boyne's and uh, a friend of Ann Spencer's, who at the time was running uh, the IMDHA, who founded it. Um, and so some of those people all showed up and they all just started kind of sharing their thoughts. And then they kind of looked around and they went, hey, this thing's kind of neat. And that's really what got HypnoThoughts on the map was that, which is kind of odd. Well, I'd, I'd reference that there's one program that I've done with this podcast that's probably the most downloaded one that I've done, which is that one that I did a little while ago just on seven things I learned in 2014. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, to look at other people in different businesses, even different, entirely different things. It's when that element finally comes in where, and I hate to use the phrase, when something is deeply personal, it that can't be faked. Yeah, yeah. When there's just that true statement of, hey, here's what's going on and here's what my opinions are and here's how this makes me feel. It's that moment where, whether it's the politician, where we get that, you look at the scope of recent elections over the last, well, the last 20 years, and here's the one that people just cannot identify with, they cannot connect with, they can't get on the same plane as that person. So let's kind of take that for a moment into our process. How much, you know, from the theater world, from the film world, there's all this work about finding that character. How long into hypnosis would you say, here's a stream of consciousness, how long into this process of doing hypnosis would you say it was until, if even yet, you've really found your voice in terms of how you do it, what your individual style is? It's a really good question. I prepared that one, obviously. I just made it up. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> a great question because I don't think most hypnotists even know that that's a thing. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's the phrase of I had a hobby doing magic as a kid, like up until about high school years, and it kind of disappeared with college as I discovered hypnosis. And it'd be interesting that you could watch somebody and, okay, they're doing this magician for this trick and this magician for that trick. This was kind of, I was at the age range where video instruction was flourishing, right? which the old school people were all from books. And with hypnosis, you can start to watch somebody and even from a similar perspective, pick apart where their style come from. So now that I've given you some time for it, you should have an answer now, right? <laughs> well, sure. Well, uh, the interesting thing is I launched HypnoThoughts before I really found what I think is now my voice. And, yes. and uh, it should evolve. But for me, the, I remember even posting this on Yahoo groups and, and saying, look, I am good at hypnosis now. I've been working really hard. I've been watching the videos. I've been practicing. I've been, and you know, I was doing this in college. So I had all these people just, you know, dorm rooms full of people who would, would let me practice on them. And so I was like, I was hypnotizing hundreds of people and I knew how to do hypnosis, but I didn't know what hypnotherapy really was. And I didn't know how to get there, you know, because again, I was 20 and looked 16. And so trying to find a voice that was an authority enough to help people with a real issue that still was congruent with how I visually looked was a real challenge. And I remember getting to the point where I could own that, where I could switch from I'm too young to do this to look mentally, you know, in terms of how you psych yourself up, saying, look how awesome I am even at this young age, right? That kind of <laughs> confidence flip had to happen. I remember the first time I really had to use it, I had a client in, uh, and it was in the dental office, and, and he had real issues. You know, there was, there was a lot going on, you know, uh, divorces and business stuff and, you know, just a real world, a real life. An adult man looked at me and he said, I've got all this going on. What are you, 12? How are you supposed to help me? And he meant it. And he wasn't trying to be insulting. He was saying, I need help. Why the hell did they send you? And I had to answer that question in that moment. He said, how are you supposed to help me? And I looked at him and I said, I can help you because I'm really good at my job. And that, that just kind of came out, and he was completely satisfied by that answer, which is ridiculous in hindsight, but he was. He was satisfied by the congruence that I had, and I realized that in that moment I could use uh, sort of as a character this version of me that is uh, you know, a little bit cocky, uh, but sincere, right? You know, sincere and caring and knowledgeable, and finding that and, and, you know, wanting to play with that, you watch shows like, I don't know, house and things like that. And you watch the way he's able to help people without caring about people. And do you want that? Or do you want, you know, something more emotional? And there's a gestation period of this issue that just takes repetitions. And there's that whole, and I go back to it a lot, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours thing. Uh, and I, it's not a binary thing where at 9,000 hours you suck <laughs> and at 10,000 hours you're good, but, but there really is something to be said for gestation and, and getting the opportunity to experiment and play with finding your voice. Uh, the other piece for me as a presenter and an educator was practice groups. You know, we had a thing in LA called the Somnambulistic Sleepwalkers. Mm -hmm. And there were a number of groups, you know, nationally that ran those, you know, started in New York and there were others. 
Uh, it's a terrible name, um, but it's a it's a great thing. It was a it was before meetups, and it was a free hypnosis practice group. And uh, L.A. we met every week. Other places only met once a month, but we met every Tuesday in a different spot. Uh, you know, so we had four different locations. And so first Tuesday we met in Long Beach. Second Tuesday we met in L.A. Third Tuesday we met in Orange County. And so we would just go to them, which meant I had to you know when it was my turn to present. You know, I would present the Elman induction or, you know, whatever it was. And it meant that I had to present the same topic four times in a month, which at that point in my career was incredibly useful and and getting feedback from people on on what worked and what didn't. And uh, and then watching video of myself and, and listening to recordings of myself and diving in in those ways that I think a lot of hypnotists don't really see the value of. But it's an audition. It's a rehearsal. It's a muscle. And you build that muscle and the more you do that, the better you get at it. So to me, uh, it's kind of a, a rambling answer, but it took me until I knew the answer to what is the difference between hypnosis and hypnotherapy for me. Mm-hmm. And, and once I knew, okay, I'm not just doing hypnosis, I can do hypnotherapy. And some people don't like that word um, because it has the word therapy in it. But for me, at least internally, there has to be a difference. Because I know what I was doing when I was hypnotizing people, and I know what I'm doing when I'm seeing clients. And for me to understand how to do my job well, I want to delineate those things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's shocking to me how many people don't review their own process. Uh, I've I got my start in this from doing stage hypnosis, and I often would feel that the work that I'm doing in the session is often more stage hypnosis than my stage hypnosis. Not from the sake of entertainment. Give him a round of applause now that his fear is gone. No. Instead, from this perspective of my whole thing is I've got to go into that mental state of your success and bring you along for the ride. And I've got to step into that. That's got to be real for me. Otherwise, I don't think either of us is going to go there that day. Yeah, there is an element of, and I think this might rub some people the wrong way, but there's an element of showmanship that is inherent in seeing clients. I'd say that 100% true. Yeah. Yeah, it's that element of how do we, on one side of things, yes, it's the hypnotherapy process. I We're both in the States. You're in California. You can use the word hypnotherapy, right? Yeah. 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 Same is true for Virginia. I have my own clever reasons for preferring the word hypnosis. But in my conversations with other hypnotists, there's a clear, now we're talking hypnosis. Now we're talking hypnotherapy conversation. Mm-hmm. And it seems that even in states where that word is heavily regulated, the same conversation is going on in terms of just how we talk about the education of the process. But to recognize those moments where one is beginning and one is ending, where one is blending into the other, yeah. I think is where that showmanship comes in. So let's jump back then. You're working in spaces you can find. You eventually get things set up. You've done something that I think is is fascinating that is that you're in residence mm-hmm. in places that often people would be surprised to find out there's a hypnotist. Yeah. I'm weird in that respect. And at this point now, it's, it's really easy. Um, it, it wasn't in the beginning. Uh, so I'm on staff in a dental office. I used to go in every week. I don't go in every week anymore just because it's not financially worth it for me. Uh, they send me the referrals. I only go in there maybe one day a month now. But yeah, that's great. I'm still on staff there and, it, and it's nice. I was on staff there where I was going in every week for eight years maybe. So I did eight years of once a week in there. Uh, seven, maybe something like that. Uh, I'm on staff in uh, a doctor's office. Well, 
I, I recently am no longer on staff in the doctor's office because the doctor's office was just um, purchased by UC Irvine School of Medicine. And so, and I've taught at that med school to, uh, to med students, to first year students. And I, I've taught at some of their uh, colloquium lecture series on neurology and, and neuropathic pain. But, the, but now that the practice has moved from uh, a private practice to the, uh, the actual university clinic, I'm now on a red tape waiting list. But, you know, I did, I'd say, four years on staff in that uh, medical facility. Now it's just referrals. I'll probably end up on staff again at some point down the line. But right now it's referrals, uh, which is obviously fun. And then I'm on staff in five or six or seven drug rehab centers. You know, some of them are residential. Some of them are outpatient. Some of them are very high end. Some of them are in an alternative to prison time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a wide variety there that uh, I see people for all of those things on treatment teams. And overwhelmingly, the staff and the clients love the integration of hypnosis into those programs. How different would you say, let's say, the the process you're making use of in that environment? How different would you say that is, let's say, when you're at a drug rehab center as it is when you're actually in your own private office? Uh, The main difference is uh, how much flexibility is required. You know, I'm very spoiled in my office. My office is pretty darn silent. Uh, I've got nobody around me. I've got, you know, buffers and uh, offices around me that are quiet. Uh, I've got a nice view. I've got comfortable furniture and the things work the way I want. In all those other places, I have, it's got to be rock and roll, right? Where you got to say, hey, I need you to see these patients in this room instead of this room. I need you to I mean, in one of the offices I've been in, in one of the medical offices, they said, I need you to drag the recliner chair down the hall in front (laughs) of the patients and then see them in that treatment room instead of this exam room because of some constructions. And, And you just need to be able to do that. In the drug rehab center, it's even more where I'll be working with a group and then somebody will come in. I mean, I've in the past two months wild cards that I've dealt with are in the middle of a group session, someone gets pulled out and is told they have cancer and then sent back into the room. Or people will be pulled out and told they are uh, been filed for divorce, you know, their spouse is divorcing them, and then they are put back in the room. I've had sessions where 10 minutes before group starts, I find a dead body, and it's a person I know. So the flexibility and your ability to be a professional under dramatically unideal scenarios comes with all those things. And that goes back to hypnosis being a muscle. And, uh, you know, you have to flex it and exercise it if you want it to be strong. If you want to work in clinical settings and if you want to work on a team, part of teamwork is not getting your way and still showing up and being a professional. No, I, I think back to someone that I met one time at a convention that was making use of a temporary space and for whatever reason that day couldn't see the clients, specifically, though, because her favorite room wasn't available. Though I have my own story of being made fun of by a client, there's a day a few months back where, and this is by no means a comparison to what you just referenced, but it's the experience where I drive into my office park and there's like six power trucks outside and there's no power. Right. Which admittedly, I did call a client to say, hey, just so you know, to which he made fun of me and saying, you talk to me in a dark room. Why does it matter if there's power? It's like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, their eyes are going to be closed anyway. Yeah, but it's that experience of call it guerrilla training, call it the experience of just having to make it work rather than where most people would have probably gone, well, I need it quiet. I don't have my music. I need this. It's why I'm a big fan of this. And as much of a tech junkie I am that before we started recording, you and I were talking microphones and webinar software before any of that, 
I see the people that are making use of headphones during their sessions, making use of technology, mm-hmm. to which my thought is always what, when the, what happens when the power goes out, which of, of course most people doing that are quite skilled and can do that. But it's that mindset of make it work anywhere. I'd say that's probably made you much more effective in your one-on-ones in your own office in that ideal environment. Oh, yeah. I mean, my office, it feels like it's like T-ball. You know, it's cheating because <laughs> I, I get to stack the deck completely. And, yeah. you know, I, I meet them at the elevator. You know, I, I get to do all these things. I've got the right furniture. Thing, you know, I get to set up everything the way I want to e- evoke a set of emotions and to create an environment. And in those other places, I have to be able to do that only using me, right? And and come up with whatever the tools are. And some of it's, you know, again, showmanship on, on what you do to create an environment when all you get is a folding chair. What environmental success tools would you use in that environment where it's someone else's place and it's now you have to use this room? Yeah. So if you're going to be in on a treatment team, to me, one of the key things is you can never, I mean, you, you shouldn't do this ever anyway, but you can never say anything to complain about the situation you're in, right? Mm-hmm. You can't say, oh man, I guess we're going to be in the bad room today or uh, forgive us while we're dealing with this. You can't do any of that. You've got to just say, this is where we're going and, and be ready to go. You can't belittle the staff you're dealing with. It, even if you back up and kind of make it a more meta picture, it's and they've done studies on this, and they show that so much of the therapeutic benefit comes from the relationship, right? The relationship I create with my client has a very healing, for lack of a better term, impact. And that relationship has to be portable, right? Um, Just like your friendships are. It doesn't matter if you're at a sports bar or a wedding or whatever, your friendship is portable and you can create that bond. This is a different kind of bond, obviously, but being able to do that in any of those places, that's the showmanship to me. It's I'm sincere. I genuinely care. I'm willing to interrupt you because I'm a little bit cocky and I've done this a lot. And because I'm good at what I do, I'm willing to take calculated risks. And that requires probably a disclaimer, but I'm willing to take calculated risks to work with you to help you get what you want. And I'm not just going to sit here and nod my head. I'm going to make sure that I'm fact checking you. I'm ecology checking you. I'm going with everything I can with my skills to help get what you want to have happen. Well, let's actually spend some time on that then. That it's interesting that from the business world, they would train people to say that, um, and this would be an older school of thought, of course, uh, but I've heard it even recently as well. The whole school of thought to say, you've got to let the person talk. You've got to let them build up the rapport. You should stay in the, I've heard this from other schools of thought, even in hypnosis, that the phone call comes in and keep them on the phone for at least 30 minutes. That way they've built rapport with you. Yet what you've referenced here is an example of I, I, I flash to if you've ever seen it. Many people have seen the movie of Wolf of Wall Street. Right. But the guy who it's based on, Jordan Belfort, teaches his mm-hmm. straight line persuasion sales system, which is this way of in that arena, it's you're moving towards the sale and that's actually building rapport instead. And in our hypnosis process, the more we can do that to always be navigating towards the close, always be closing. So look at it from the perspective of we sometimes do have that moment where it kind of goes against our sit like they sit, use their words, um, sort of the, I'll say it comfortably, the sort of bastardized version of rapport. But those moments to interject, those moments to 
challenge a statement, to look for that self-limiting belief and begin to unpack it. What kind of give me like a characterization of how that process goes for you as you're just beginning the process? Well, well, even philosophically, they're coming to me because they need help yes, and they feel out of control uh, in some area of their life, maybe completely, but often not completely. Often it's just as it relates to food or cigarettes or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. They feel out of control. There, there's a real argument to be made for, let me take control of that element of your life for the next 20 minutes. Yeah, I'll take control of that for right now. And then we'll teach you how to have control because they're coming to a professional, Right. They have a whole, often a whole lot of people in their life who are there to listen, love, and support, right? And you can respectfully guide and lead. I love pacing. I really, really do. And maybe if I'm critical of myself, I do too much pacing before I lead. Yeah, being able to jump in and say, look, I know how to do this. I've done this before. I'm going to have a bunch of questions. And, and this is, I think, when you talk about always be closing, and you already said the word sale, which is such a bad word in hypnosis. Um, but <laughs> you know, anything that's business related, how, how dare we? Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> I, I think the, the best piece of advice on how to close a client on the phone and uh, this really, and I was, I was talking to a couple of my students the other day about this answer, and it's the best way to get them is you need to be able to answer the question that hasn't been asked. Exactly. Because if you can answer the unasked questions, you can help me. If you knew the question before I asked it, or even better, if you knew the next question before I knew the next question, you're the pro that I want to go see. And so being able to do that is solution-focused brief therapy. Right? And I know I'm not a therapist, but you, we can learn from that model. Well, it's, it's sales 101 to satisfy objections before they even arise. Right. And recognizing that even in our most conversational structure with our potential client on the phone, we probably say some of the same things in the same order each time. And to play that game and just begin to unpack, as soon as I say this, what's the possible concern? Well, this would be the response to that concern. Why don't I say that concern first then so this never arises? It's like Groundhog's Day, right? He's not smarter than everyone. He's just been there so many times. Yeah. That's the last reference I expect you to go to on that one. I was expecting chess, but I'll take Groundhog Day. I like that better. Uh, Anytime (laughs) I can get Bill Murray, I'll take it every time. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com. Hey, it's Jason Lynette here, and just one more quick thing. Have you ever heard the phrase, I felt relaxed, but I don't know if I was hypnotized? Well, if you've heard that statement before, what it basically means is that one of the most important ingredients of your hypnotic session or demonstration simply wasn't there. If your participant or your client leaves without the conviction and belief that they really experienced a state of hypnosis, one of the most important and essential ingredients, again, just wasn't there. And what I've done for you is I've put together some real-world tested strategies, powerful, proven strategies, things that I make use of before, during, and after my hypnosis sessions that help me to build greater conviction, increase the belief in the process, and by accident, turn my clients into raving fans of their experience. It's all put together for you in a program I call Hypnotize with Conviction. Several different strategies, again, before, during, and after your session or even demonstration that I know are going to change the way that you do hypnosis. Whether you're a hypnotherapist or a stage hypnotist, these techniques are for you. Check it out online today, hypnotizewithconviction.com.